we invite you to another opportunity to study the Word of God from the book of uh, Romans, chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles or your pew Bibles, chapter 11 of Romans. And I'd like to read a verse 36 last week when Brother Stephen was preaching. You know, he had mentioned life and what proceeds from life or God, and I immediately thought of this verse, 36, of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that verse has kind of stuck with me all week. So I pray that the Lord will bless us in the reading of it and the study of it this morning as we share the beautiful testimony from God's Word. You know, the Word of God is very deep. So, what I can share with you this morning from the Word of God is a fraction, is it not? A fraction of the blessings of God. Because the Bible is so deep that, you know, you can share some things from the Bible and still not catch it all. That's how deep it is. If we presented before you this morning a glass of water... For instance, this water reflects a much greater source, an immeasurable amount of water exists in the world. And who are we uh, this morning to preach the unsearchable ways of God which are past finding out? I mean, who? Who are we? The mystery of uh, preaching is beautiful because... It is that. It's a mystery. You see, I'm merely explaining things and you're there enjoying the reading of them. You're receiving the Word which is sown through the preaching of the Gospel. And together, we form a beautiful union. It's not a matter of who is up here. It's the message that is most important as Brother Van conveyed to a young man named Brian. It's the message of God. It's the message, it's the gospel message. It's the light of that message that envelops the heart of a child of God and causes him to rejoice. Uh, Paul the Apostle was a preacher who far exceeded his ability, even though he himself was a tremendous man by natural perspective. He had all kinds of talents. He was educated. Uh, But he considered it all but dumb because... Who he was, uh, in terms of our viewpoint, is a vessel who was filled with the Spirit of God. He was inspired of God to write the things that he did. And no matter how profound uh, a man he was, he was made certainly by the overarching power and and ability that God gave him. And so regardless of where we are along the scale of things, uh, God meets out according to his own sovereign will, each man's ability in terms of uh, their teaching the Word of God. But it doesn't take much when it comes to the Spirit of God blessing a message. A pauper or a prince can preach the gospel if they're blessed of God. It matters not who they are, where they came from, or what they're worth. It's the message of God that redounds unto his glory and his honor. Paul said, or excuse me, Peter He said, all flesh is grass. 
So the next time you view the preacher as somebody special, you re, you're, you're to be reminded of 1 Peter chapter 1 and 24. All flesh is grass, and the glory of man as the flower of the field, or of grass. And he goes on and he says, The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So, Romans chapter 11, so much for the the mystery of preaching. And um, having said that, you know, I'm reminded of of Sonny Powell's. Here's a man who preached over 300 times a year. And every time he preached, you can hear in his introduction his covet or his interest of your prayers on his behalf. No matter how intelligent he was, no matter how deep a mind he was, he needed the prayers of those he preached to. That's what I mean, that we're in this mysterious assembly together. I'm merely preaching the Word, and you're receiving it. And together we conform to the wonderful will of God in this thing. And as bright and as brilliant as he was, this will humble you. Um, a day or two before he passed away, uh, his daughter entered the room. Um, what's her name? Can anybody? Lynn. Sister Lynn? Okay, Sister Lynn entered the room and said, Dad, can I read a portion of Scripture for you? He said, I'm already reading it. You know, he had a photocopy mind and he could read at will the scriptures. But this is what fascinates me. Because all of us here are on the same road and journey of life. We're all servants of God. We're all working the plow. We're not looking back. We're trying to work God's kingdom in whatever manner in which He has bestowed upon us in this great service of love. But when you consider the depth and the amount of preaching that He did year in and year out, I know personally, as a matter of fact, every time He was out this way, He was out during his wife's birthday. And it was many times from my house that he would make the phone call to his wife and wish her a happy birthday. She was a good preacher's wife because she sacrificed a lot of things you and I wouldn't do for the cause of the gospel that he preached all over the world. But here's the thing that caught my eye when I was talking to Brother Joe Holder who shared some things, intimate things, about uh, Sonny Powell's the last day he was on earth. And in his hospital room, it was overheard that he was talking to people, others in his room. And then finally he mentioned the Lord to whom he addressed. He said, Lord, I'm sorry I didn't do enough. If you know that man and what he did, that would humble you. Because he did a lot more than you and I could ever achieve. Brother Mark, you would know that. Such is the mystery of preaching and such is the mystery of the, the messenger that is bearing the message that is to be delivered. Paul said in one place, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. In other words, there was a tremendous burden and affliction in his soul if he doesn't dispense that which God places in a man. That which he places in a man, he must tell out. He must tell out. He must share. All of us understand a little bit of this, obviously. 
Because we have this truth in an earthen vessel, and it's bursting forth with radiance and joy and and glory and and just all those wonderful things that God has put in within us. doesn't matter who you are. We redound, all of us, by the grace of God, to the glory of God. This is what Paul is saying here in this great verse. It's profound. It's profound. And yet, I want you to notice the simplistic syllables in which it's presented. Three simple monosyllables. Listen, the truth of God, no matter how deep it is, is conveyed in the simplest form. For God so loved the world. I mean, it's profound. It's profound. Notice what he says in the very simplistic way. Of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Isn't that neat? These little one-syllable words. Of, through, and to. And yet, it's going to be a labor for me to quit at 12. If, 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 if we can share with you some of the things that maybe Paul himself experienced. This is coming at basically the end of a great doctrinal treatise. Probably the best literature known to man. I mean, it has to be this right here in the book of Romans. You can take whatever artist, for instance, and nobody could draw more beautiful a picture than the words that are conveyed here by the Apostle Paul in the first 11 chapters of this great book on Romans, given to a Gentile church. All of us here can feel likened to these little Gentiles called out of a world of darkness and transplanted, if you will, translated, transferred, whatever word you want to convey to show that they've been made partakers of the gospel of God's redeeming grace. These words here uh, in Romans set forth the balance of the book because the balance of the book conveys what we ought to do as a result of His great love for us. But he couldn't come to this close without saying in this great hymn of praise. And basically, the way I see the Apostle Paul write, you know, you take the first chapter in the book of Ephesians, which to many people are just dogged down with doctrinal words, you know, you know, in this day and age in which we live. But yet, if you examine them, it's presented in a position of praise and adoration. See, that's how God blesses His people with great deep doctrinal thoughts. It's positioned in such a way that it redounds to His glory and honor. You know, there's nothing in there that gives praise to man, in other words. And so that's the way I see this wonderful verse of simplistic syllables. Of. There's three principles. Of, through, and to. There's three major principles here that are presented for us. Very simple. Of, the source. When we think about God, we think about the fountainhead of all life. That's the key that made me think of this verse when Brother Steve was preaching last week. You talking about the mystery of the gospel of the Son of God and how it interwovenly brings our hearts knit together in this great love. It draws you and we think things. That's why the preaching of the cross is a mystery. It's not like teaching. It's not like just a lecture like I'm trying to fill your head with knowledge. A teacher, that's what he does. And they have pupils. And the pupils are supposed to be there. And he's supposed to use whatever craft he has in, in order to get these young students informed of what he's trying to convey. But the preaching of the cross is a mystery. And it's, and it's, 
It's, it's, it's encapsulated within the Spirit of God. And God's Holy Spirit works. I remember a time when I was in Indiana, I was preaching a sermon, and some woman came up after me after I'd preached the sermon and said, you know, your sermon convinced me of who I was going to marry. I said, what? I had no idea I was even hitting on those subjects, which, which I wasn't. But this mysterious working of the Spirit of God uh, draws things in our heart and pulls us in the direction in which He will lead us. It's amazing. It's amazing. And as soon as we try to fab- fabricate and manufacture what preaching is, and we take it off the idea of a spiritual-based sermon, and we just bring one, two, and three points, and so on and so forth, and make it dry as a lecture, then we really we, we, we infringe upon the right of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, we pray that the Word of the Lord may have free course, and that only comes through the demonstration and the power of the leadership of the Spirit of God. That's why we pray before we come to the service, we ask God to bless His Word. That you may receive the word with meekness. The engrafted word, he said, which is able to save or deliver your souls. He said to that woman in Simon's house, as he pointed to Simon, Seest thou this woman? You know what saved her on that occasion? The Bible says, delivered her. Thy faith hath saved thee. That woman was notorious a sinner from the local city. She was known and repugnant in the eyes and the heart of a proud Pharisee. Luke writes one thing and Simon says another. This man who claims to be a prophet, does not he understand and know who this woman is? She is a sinner. But you watch what Luke said in presenting that record to us. This woman, which was a sinner, because she was blessed by the sovereign grace of God, who drew her out of the wickedness of this world and set her on a beautiful footing, a stable footing, a sure foundation, a security that she had in Christ, and through gospel belief and faith was delivered from that the rest of her days. She might have wore a reputation for it, but she counted it dumb for the excellency of the knowledge and the wisdom of God Almighty, which is in Christ. That's what I'm talking about. How beautiful this verse. For of him and through him and to him are all things. Now, when you read a common commentary on this particular verse or hear a common sermon, uh, everybody likes to rush to those words, are all things. And they immediately grapple with the negative side of sin. You know, man has a problem with that. He gravitates toward wanting to cast off the accountability of his own actions on somebody else. And in this particular case, on God. God is not the author of sin. And yet, this is a verse with a phrase that almost always uh, translates to God's fault in our sin. What calls God? What calls God to do this? We blame God, naturally speaking, for the ills and sinful actions of which we ourselves are author of. We blame God. We cause Him, we make Him to be the author of sin. But the all things are not here considered that in that universal way in which we like to gravitate. I mean, just take, for instance, the Apostle Paul as an example, if I may. If I don't get through this verse today, we're going to catch on it some other time in the future. 
But let's look at this for a minute. How does the Scriptures deal with the all things? Well, just as a, an example, here's Paul the Apostle. He's taken on one particular occasion, having deferred his defense to Rome. He was a citizen of Rome, and by a citizen he had certain legal rights. In other words, he had due process. We all know what that phrase means. In other words, under the law, they had certain provisions provided that you would be heard, that you could have a defense of other charges against you, that you could be heard in a court of law. And so here, Paul the Apostle was afforded due process by a, a, an alien, if you will, a Gentile king by the name of Festus. And he was brought before this governor in Caesarea. And, of course, the charges were presented by the great lawyer who was very, you know, a great orator. Paul made mention of the fact that, by the way, we're only 12 days away from Jerusalem and there's not a witness here to convey what they are charging me for. Not a one witness was there. But they stated the charges and Festus turned to Paul and he said, speak on. He was afforded due process, which a lot of us may be denied. He was afforded by the grace of God. This is what he said. I have a hope toward God of the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And of course, that were the words that he made mention of that brought all this about because he stirred up. He didn't cause rioting in the temple. He was just preaching the gospel of the Son of God who had risen from the dead and sat down at all on the right-hand side of all majesty. So he was preaching the resurrection. And so Paul merely presented that, and it stirred up the anger of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, who disbelieved that, among other things. And anyway, there he was, taken away in handcuffs by Lystia, the chief Roman centurion. And he was taken away. And of course, he expressed to Festus that he had a hope toward God, a hope which is beyond the veil, a hope, if you will, through grace, in other words, he entertained a belief in God. This was his hope that he presented before the court that day. But Festus, he also entertained a hope. And this is what I mean, that not all things are all things. Of which we speak this morning, the of and through and to all things are by the things of which I speak are the good things of God, if you will. There's Festus. He had a hope that Paul would give him money. And so he kept him locked up, would see him on occasion. Yes, the things that he said and preached were disturbing to his soul. But he was hoping for that money from Paul. And it never came. And at the end of his little two-year stint, Felix came into power. Or Festus. Let's say Felix first and Festus second. I'm sorry. But he left him. The Bible says Felix left him in prison in order to do the Jews favoritism. He could care less about Paul the Apostle. He wanted money and he wanted favoritism. He wanted to please the Jewish people. And so whenever we read about all things, we read it within light of reason and common sense. What that man entertained was something out of his own heart, which any natural born son of Adam can do. He can have a hope in things pertaining to this world. But that which pertains to the next world, that which pertains on the footing of grace, on the substance of God's sovereign mercy, that's what I'm talking about. Now, 
having said that, this particular verse comes at the back tail, the end of a great doctrinal treatise on the church of God and those that were blessed to be partakers of it, in particular the Gentile church, or excuse me, the Gentiles who were engrafted in. In contrast to the Jewish legalists who were cut off and out of that olive tree, which is a picture of the church. And so that which was in the Old Testament concerning the church of God in the wilderness, the olive tree, and those wonderful uh, branches that bore the root and the fatness thereof because they were blessed of God with the oracles and the promises and the men who would bear the covenants of grace down and throughout thousands of years of history. They rebelled against God over and over and over again until finally that sin of rebellion reached its pinnacle at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they took the Son. They took the Son of God Himself that one which was received not. That one in which who came to his own but received him not, as we heard. They killed the Lord of glory. And through by wicked hands they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen carefully. They were cut off of that olive tree. And so what we talk about in terms of this great doctrinal treatise in the 11th chapter of Romans is both the goodness and the severity of God, the seriousness of God, because He turns to the Gentiles, you and I today, that are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and He warns them of, don't you boast against those natural branches. Don't you think you're something better than they are? Because it's through their unbelief you're sitting here rejoicing in the wonderful privilege of being numbered with those of old, you see. You're engrafted into the olive tree You're part of the church of God. Now, if you boast against them right now, you could be uh, putting yourself under the severity of God and be cut off of the provisions, the gospel provisions of being named the church of the holy God. Well, that's the context. But although this verse, and we could go in various places in that chapter to point those very important things out, the all things... But you can just read about them as we've already mentioned, like the olive tree of the church, but also other words like covenant, gospel, gifts, calling, mercy, wisdom, and knowledge. All those words are conveyed just prior to this great verse. So when we think of of and through and to all things, we think about these wonderful blessings that we have. Even fear and reverence, humility. And those things in our life that no matter what they do in terms of defeating our spiritual appetite, uh, we sacrifice to the Lord Himself. I mean, that's the basis. Mercy, for instance, is the very basis of what Paul presents going forward. You see, it's by mercy we're sitting in this place, in heavenly places in Christ, and it's by mercy, as he said, therefore that you present your body as a living sacrifice. So he, he uses that phrase to catapult into these wonderful things about what we do as Christians. You know, in the 12th chapter, it really highlights a lot about what we do. And so this verse is the basis, not only of the substance of what's been said already, but something yet to come in terms of our service to God, our reasonable service.
Because this verse conveys, and here's another aspect of what I got from Brother Steve's sermon last week. It conveys something so profound that we just can't miss it. And that is the purpose for which we are alive and breathe. Why we live and move and have our being today on earth. Why? Why? And you can go to the world and the secular and philosophical philosophers of this day and age and you can ask the question, why? What's important for us today? Why do we exist? Well, they would tell you, you know, we live for our self. We achieve what we can. And whatever we do achieve, we face death. They don't deny it. But we give that to our those that come up behind us. So it's all about material. It's still self-absorbed. Nothing relates to God. And so these principles are carried on throughout our life. Of, through, and to Him really conveys everything that we believe in, everything that we are, every, the reason, the purpose for which we live. Of Him speaks of God's great source. He's the fountain of life. If we have life, it comes from Him. He is the life and the light of men. The Lord God of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the life of of all of us. And we appreciate that so much because we honor and we glorify Him for what He's done. You know, it's interesting. One of my customers is a very intelligent scientist, astronomer. And uh, I wrote books. Been to the Columbia University, teaching at uh, Maryland University. And so I wanted to pick his brain, you know, somebody as simple as I am. I wanted to ask him about the Hubble, the space telescope. You know, what is it that they're finding out? You know, new things every day. Oh, he says quasars. You know, what's a quasar? I, you know, it's light. It's up there in space. And it could be a result of something. And, you know, a, fall, a star blowing up, gases, whatever. But it's light. And he said... This Hubble, no matter where it's positioned in space, no matter what direction it's, it's taking in these pictures, light. He said he's boggled. He said, it, you know, you take a very intelligent man like this and he's humbled. He's humbled to the point where, holy cow, it's unbelievable. It's amazing. I'm, I'm humbled. I don't know what to say. I said, what's going on? He said, the light is pure power. And no matter where you turn this Hubble, it's taking pictures of three or five or six billion light years away. I said, what's that? He said, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And in one year, it's a light year. He said, it's five to six billion light years away. They're capturing this power. He said, and it looks like, no matter what direction the Hubble turns, it looks like the universe expands outward. Like as if there's a point of origin. I said, amen. You know what I want the, uh, the great uh, NASA scientists to do is to send some, a spaceship up. And I want them to paint on the side of the Hubble, you know, maybe a sign. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Isn't that a wonderful thought? You can use it in the Hebrew. In the beginning, Elohim created heaven and earth. You could say it the way he defined himself, his own name. In the beginning, I am that I am, created heaven and earth. All things were created by him when there was nothing that existed. 
He came literally, if you will, in my finite way of conveying it, from nowhere, and He created something out of nothing. God is the creator of all things. By Him, all things consist. And without Him was nothing made that was made. Now, when's the last time you heard that? That God is the sole creator of all. And how this, uh, in, in the first chapter of the book of Romans, it's conveyed. Um, he said the invisible things of, of Him. Very simple word, of, speaks of source. The invisible things of Him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even His eternal power. Now, I like this. And Godhead. Because we automatically... I remember Brother Compton would often share gravity. And I agree. Gravity is a power that is invisible. And I think of electricity. Electricity is a power that is invisible. You know, it's amazing the resources that God has blessed this earth with. You take light, for instance... And we had mentioned light in our previous message when we were talking about the rainbow and the incident light and various colors that come from light, from infraction. But light, think about this for a minute. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And so you can trace that light back into the three or five or six or however many long light years away, and God is, you see. And so when I think about the invisible things of creation, I think about God. I think about His Spirit. I think about the things that we can't see. You know, He created the heavens and earth, but I wasn't there when it happened. But I believe that I can see it through faith. I, we perceive, we believe, we understand with a spiritual mind that what we see, God created. But I wasn't there. And so in, sense, in a sense, that's the invisible things of God. That's tremendous. Paul the Apostle, you remember I just mentioned Acts 24, and it's, it's neat here because he stood up and he said, Most noble Felix, I believe all things which are written in the Law of Prophets. That's what he said. So the Apostle Paul believed in what we read about. He and I were, were on the same page. I believe that God created the heaven and the earth. I believe all things that are written in the law and the prophets. That's what Paul stood up for. He stood up for it. Don't, we, don't, don't shy away from that in our day and age. You'll be ridiculed. You'll be laughed at. You'll be scorned. Maybe lose a job. But that's all right. God in one is a majority. God in one is a Let every man be a liar, but let God be true. You bear the truth to the day you die, and you honor God. But listen, let's go on. Creation is a wonderful aspect of this idea that God is the source of all living things. <clears throat> Here are some scriptures for you that I have tucked away in my heart that I love. <clears throat> uh, Jeremiah. Let's go to Jeremiah, one of the neatest chapters in all the book. He says, um, you know, since we're on the subject of ordinances, he said in verse thirty. Five, thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon, the moon and the stars of the, for a light by night, which divideth the sea, when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. 
I asked the scientists about the moon rocks. You know, I was curious because I know for a fact that, you know, we're all thinking alien, you know, and whatever's out in space is quite different than what's taking place here on Earth. What's the composition of those moon rocks anyway? Well, he spouted off a lot of fancy words and looked those words up, and basically it's the same composition of what you're sitting on, this Earth. In other words, the moon rocks, when they brought them back from the Apollo missions, they, they were really excited to see and possibly learn that the substance or composition of these rocks were something out of this world, something alien to Earth. You know, and come to find out they were stupefied or whatever that word is that conveys they were bewildered that these rocks were made out of the same substance that terra firma, this old earth, is. Isn't that amazing? Because God created the heaven and the earth. He's the source of all of it. You see? And you can go far deep into space and the light that we have by day, there's light out there. It all comes from the same source, if you will. The light of God. God is light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But anyway, I know there's timepieces, the moon, the sun. These are timepieces. And by the way, these images that they see three to five, six light years away, they're billions of times larger than the sun. How about that for size? God is the source of all of it. We serve a big God. We often hear God is awesome. I would say amen to that. Would you say amen to that? Amen. All right, I'm going to... Here's another scripture I had. Isaiah 45. Talking about these, you know, God in creation. He said, I've made the earth, verse 12, and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. Can you see the argument here? Isn't it a shame... That the, the people of Israel have been kind of wandering now in darkness for thousands of years. They still don't get it. You know, I've created this for my name's sake. And yet they're running to the rocks and the trees and the bushes and the plants. And they're falling down and worshiping idols created by men's hands. He said, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. And by the way, that word evil is not moral evil. That word there is raw, as in calamity or severity, judgment, things like that, which they were well aware of. Oh no, that scripture there is, is amazing. And it goes on, and it goes on, and, if, and finally he says, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. You see, God, God is teaching his Israelites they would look to him for their salvation. He brought them by a, a unique way, has, did he not? In order to understand him, he pursued in them that they must understand by faith. By faith, they came to the Red Sea. They came to the Red Sea and bewildered. Let me get back to Egypt. What have you done? You've brought me to this place. Now I'm going to die at the hands of the Egyptians. They're following hard after us. we got the Red Sea in front of us. But God says, be still. And know that I am God. He's saying it today. He's saying it to God's children. We sung about it. Be still and know that I'm God. We fail to believe in Him. We fail to believe in Him. That's what I've said. I've said before that with a man without faith is a weakling. I tell you, a man without faith. You watch a man before the wall of death without faith. And you'll see a weakling. You'll see anxiety, fear, trepidation. 
But you see a person with faith. You see a person with faith. I remember now walking into Sister Rebecca's hospital room this week and I didn't get a step in the room before I saw a smile from ear to ear. There's a woman with faith. Immediately a verse came to my mind out of Psalms 144. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. I don't care what they're faced with. Happy because by Spirit of God they are while overwhelmed by the physicalities of uh, temporal life and by death itself, they're overwhelmed by these things and circumstances, but they see God. They have faith in God. They, have, they embrace eternal life. They lay hold of things far greater than what they see and feel, you see. That's what Paul's message was. That's what this brother, I said, amen. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, the scripture says, lay hold, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold. Of eternal life, which thou art here, whereunto thou art called, and hast professed a good profession among many witnesses. That's in this verse. Because of and through eventually gets to two. You know, it used to be a time when I couldn't get that order just right. Of, through, to, to, through, of. What's the right order? Well, it's easy. When you understand that God is the source of all. And that through Christ he blesses all in his covenant of mercy. And you and I by virtue of that now give glory to God in return. Isn't that neat? So I can never get that messed up again. Of, through, or by, and to God is the right order. But anyway, what a blessing it is. Let our faith stand not in the strength of the wisdom of men, but in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Well, that scripture back in Jeremiah, I'm going to keep on going because Paul says all things of and through. So it's hard to differentiate these three great principles because the scriptures tie them all together. And it's really... We do a disservice to the scriptures when we try to isolate them so much so that they're far removed from their togetherness. We see the Godhead, in other words, the invisible things of God. We see the invisible things of the Godhead. They're made manifest to us. And by the way, going back to that Romans chapter 1 text, I want you to understand something very important. He says, it's by these things, because that which may be known of God is manifest and then it says, in them, for God has showed it unto them. Now, I want you to notice something here. That text in the original has it this way, which can be better understood in the light of what I'm trying to say. Because that which may be known of God is manifested to them. The manifestation of the great invisible power and the Godhead of God is manifested to them by what we see, the invisible things of God, the Son Space, light, the miraculous power God has invested in the resources of man, like oil to trim your lamps, like electricity, modern light. All this conveys and manifests that God is the creator and he is he's created this world to be inhabited by, you and, by the likes of you and I. I wanted you to get to that point because uh, this picture here in Romans 1, beyond the point of verse 17, to me, conveys 
the worst of humanity as abandoned from, alienated from their maker. Now we go back to Jeremiah 31, and here's where I want you to go because we're thinking now as we convey further along this great verse in Romans 11, it speaks not only of the source, but also speaks of the means. See, that's the second most important principle, that all that God has for us comes through His means. And I want you to see where they are from an Old Testament perspective. If those ordinance, verse 36, if those things which God has created, which demonstrate His awesome power, He said, if those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven can be measured. Now you know it can't be measured. The Hubble telescope cannot measure the heavens. And I did meet. I went, I went to a old Peabody Institute there years ago and I heard Montana speak, who was the president of the initial Hubble space program. And he was bewildered at this newfound thing they found way back in space that they refer to as the black hole or dark energy. They couldn't quite put their finger on it. They can't describe it. They don't understand it. They cannot measure it. That's what I mean. Notice what it says. He says, If those ordinances depart from me, saith the Lord before me, then the seed of Israel shall also cease. In other words, if... And then he, then he says this. He says, If heaven above can be measured, the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. And so, you know, the mercy of God in keeping his people secure is based on his own word and he said, he puts, he puts it out this way, but if you can measure the heavens above or search out the, the sea beneath, then I will discard my own people. That's what he says. But you can't do it. It's impossible. Neither can you, neither can you take that which belongs in the hands of Almighty God and rip it out from beneath him. You can't do it. You can't do it. We are in the hands of the Lord, the Almighty. We are secure. We are more secure. We are more secure than those elements in space. Because what I'm about to tell you is far more important than all the ordinances that we see that are mind-boggling, that are immeasurable, that are unknown, that are past finding out. We, the people of God, the inheritance that belongs to Him, the people that He loved from eternity past, is far greater than anything else. Here it is. Notice this. He said, verse 38, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Heniel unto the gate of the corner. This is beautiful imagery that reflects not only the temple, where it's located, the positions of Jerusalem. It's all reflecting the great love of God that he has for his people. We are living and breathing the jewels of the breastplate of God. We are the stones They give honor to the glory of His majesty in that He's redeemed a people for His own, purchased, bought, belonged to the Lord Himself. But here's the measuring line. Here's the measuring line. God has a measuring line. We don't have it, but God does. And here is, this is beautiful. He said, And the measuring line shall yet go forth. 
over and against it upon the hill Gareb, and shall come pass about Goath. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and the ashes, and of all the fields of the brook Kidron. I want you to catch these words. Gareb, Goath, Kidron. Ashes, dead bodies. The horse gate. It's a picture of Jerusalem, the city. Mount Zion, where it's situated. And right near the Mount Zion, right outside that gate, is a place called Golgotha's Hill. Golgotha is the New Testament word for what we're reading right here in the ancient Hebrew. Gareb, Goath, the place of the skull. God's measuring line is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole valley of dead bodies, there in that trash heap where executions took place, where some claimed that rubbish was burned, that place of repugnation and stench upon the legalist scholars of that age, that place that they called the place of the skull, was God's jewel of redemption, where the Lord Jesus Christ would be crucified. That's the measuring line by which all is measured. Because there we see the love of God manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. It shall be called holy unto the Lord. That place where the condemnation of sin took place. Where God meted out his righteous wrath against his own son because of the sin of his own people. That shall be called a holy hill. Because it's separate from sinners. It's precious in the eyes of God. And I'll tell you, providentially, if you look at the cross of Calvary... And you remember the three hours of darkness that prevailed in that time when the Lord Jesus was crucified. God descended upon that hill and he protected his own son from the look of evil from those that stood about and covered his son, if you will, in a blanket of darkness. I create light. And I create darkness. And God prevailed that day even in the, in the, at the point of such miserable circumstances when wicked hands took the Lord of glory and crucified Him. I don't know how you can stand this. You see, in the New Testament, what's conveyed is this. And, and getting back to uh, Romans 11... A lot of people's theology is really based on what version they read. And you can read any version you want. I've got several of them in my own home. But if you don't fall back to the King James, you're not reading the original language. You're not catching something. Now, in the ESV, which is the modern revised version, Romans 11.6 says it this way, 36. It says, for from him. It doesn't say of him. For from him. Now, I'm going to give him a half credit, but half is not all right, is it? You know, some people read half the Bible. You know, which half, I don't know, but they're not getting the full truth. And you can convey truth in half measures and really not get the whole picture. You know, it is true that from him and through him and to him are all things. But the original says, from out of. Let's be truthful here. 
Now, it's one thing to convey this God who's the source of all living to give. From Him I have received. It's a wonderful thing that He has given me grace. He has given me love. He has given me this. He's given me that. But the Greek conveys that God gave Himself, you see. Now, we live near a particular place in D.C. They're always crying about you know, taxation without representation. And, uh, you know, they want a representative in the District of Columbia. They don't have one. By our Constitution, I hope they never do get one. That's just the way it is. That place is charted out for our government to be independent of politics. Okay? And we want it to stay that way. The framers had great wisdom in conveying that. But anyway, that's what you hear. It's on the license plate. Taxation without representation. Well, our form of government is representation. And we elect members of the country to represent us. We want people to represent us. And this is what the point I want to make. God chose somebody to represent us. He chose somebody. Now, he, did, he looked among men, obviously, and there was no one sufficient. And whom he chose was perfectly sufficient. He chose himself to be our representative. On the cross, when we think about the love of God, we don't think about what he gives us. In terms of something, we term, we think of that term in terms of God giving himself for us, a sacrifice for sin. We don't think about all these other fruits like love, joy, and peace. We think about how God gave himself for us. And that's the point that he makes in the great fifth chapter of Romans when he speaks of those covenant or federal heads. That we were all born first by Adam. Adam was a perfect specimen of the human race to represent all mankind. And when we think about our sin, we cannot escape the fact that in Adam, we all died. And we don't, you know, I don't want you to get to this idea. As a representative, it's important to note that we were in him and our choice was his choice. So much so that uh, this idea of representation includes the idea that our choice is aligned with his choice. That we sin because he sinned, but we own it. It's ours. In other words, we can't blame Adam for it, in other words. When we stand before a thrice holy God and his judgment is meted out, depart from me, that you workers of iniquity. If we were to hear those words, we would say, righteous and true are thy judgments. You see, we would agree and we would be on God's side in the condemnation of our own sinful self. We would agree with God that it's not Adam's sin, it's my sin. I own it and I'm guilty of it, you see. Well, in the same sense, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the federal head of his people. He was chosen to represent us. And in him, we have life. And he loved us in, 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 by, by virtue of the fact he gave himself for us. And therefore, we have not only been reconciled legally by his death, we've been saved by his life. And that includes a whole lot. But... It certainly includes this idea that for of him and through him. In other words, the cross of Calvary is the means whereby God gives to us his love. That's what it means here, of him and through him. Now, there's some scriptures in the New Testament that convey this. One in which I heard on the radio this morning, which I was very happy to hear. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, notice this, I'm conveying the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. 
And that all the blessings of God come through him. And somehow if we isolate ourselves from him, we're doing, our, we're, doing, we're doing ourselves great disservice. And a lot of profound people do just that. They isolate themselves from the Lord of glory. Notice what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. But, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things. Sound familiar? And we in him, and one Lord Jesus. And this is what I meant when I said earlier that, you know, we can't isolate these phrases so much that we take it away from the whole. Because the whole is presented in a variety of scriptures in the New Testament. He said, for whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So you can replace by with the word through. Through or by, it means the same thing. God has a means whereby he blesses us, and that's his dear son. Let me just read some scriptures for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. It says this. He says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Notice what it says. Knowing he which raised up the Lord Jesus Christ shall raise up us also by Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus, and shall present us with you. Here's another scripture, often misunderstood. First Peter chapter 1. There's a variety of texts here in this first chapter, but I'm going to grab verse 5. He said, who are kept by the power of God through faith. Notice this, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That word through faith, you can supplant it. With these words, by Jesus. We are kept by the power of God by Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, the mediator of the covenant between God and men. It is by His power. It is by Him, His person, that we are kept, preserved. Here is true preservation. Here is preserving grace, if you will. The inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled, and fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, through the power invested in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's presented elsewhere in that first chapter. Over and over again. We see God the Father who has elected us through His foreknowledge. We see the work of redemption, the sprinkling of blood. And we see the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Those three great covenant works make all this possible. And so, it is bought, it is of, it is through, and it is to Him. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read this verse, which is one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament. And I've yet to share it with you. I've been here, what, five or six years? Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 8. He has abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And that scripture is profound because, again, if you race to any commentary, it's always something like this. And now I'm going to give him a little bit of credit here because even in our text in Romans chapter 11, we read about this great knowledge and wisdom that we have. It is true. But in, in the 8th verse, I want you to note, you know, of all these commentaries, they're always looking at, well, we have wisdom, we have prudence. But I want you to look at that verse differently. When I was listening or reading 
I was reading Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on the book of Ephesians years ago, and he presented something completely different. And I said amen to it ever since I read it. God has abounded toward us, there's the means, through Christ, in all wisdom and prudence. You see, the wisdom and the prudence in that great verse reflects God. It's God. It's His wisdom. It's His prudence. And it is that which is abounded toward us. God has abounded toward us in love, hasn't He? But He's love. He's abounded toward us in light, but He is light, you see. God is all these things. That's all He is. He is. He is a self-existent one. And see, this verse, as we portrayed the fact that it conveys creation, also conveys salvation. It conveys providence because God provides for His people. He gives to His people and whatever we enjoy in this life, in the safeguarding and protection of our well-being, is provided of and through Him. He's provided every mean that we have. We thank God for Him. Now watch. He is full of wisdom and there's no measurement of God's wisdom. There's no measurement of His prudence. And that word prudence is a financial term. And that means basically... And here's where you can easily see it really isn't my prudence. God's abounded toward us by His prudence. And we have it because of Him. We have prudence. But this word prudence is a term that reflects the safeguard from risk, from damage, from loss. You know, a financial person, you know, you go to them and you say, here's $10. I want you to take every means necessary to make it 11 or 12 when I come back to you in a year. And so that man who's prudential in his ways is going to safeguard your money and your investment uh, from all possible dangers or risk. He's thought it out. He's prepared it. He's, he's designed it in such a way. He's thought of all the scenarios that could possibly take that $10 and make it 9 or 8 or 7 and make you an unhappy investor. And God the Father is prudent in this, that He has provided eternal salvation for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's mapped it all out. He's covered every angle. He's measured it perfectly, and He said, It's good. I'm satisfied. It's enough. My people will be with me in glory. And no man can pluck us out of His hands. He's provided it. And that's why when I visit the infirmed and the sick, that I've got a message for them. That profess a good profession among many witnesses. Lay hold of eternal life. Be happy in the Lord Jesus. Don't let these surroundings profess the truth. You know, I was... This week I, I pulled over on the side of the road. Some young man had a big sign, Jesus, in big bold letters. And you know, he's been there all day long. And I was going back and forth, getting materials, because i got a finite mind I always forget. You know, going to Home Depot once, twice, three times a day is just a natural occurrence. But this time I pulled over. I said, I said, your son, I appreciate what you're doing. But your sign doesn't tell all. I want you to put the Lord Jesus Christ. He was taken back. He, I don't have enough room. I said, you make room. Because that's the name under heaven 
among men, whereby men must be saved. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, he was bewildered. He said, well, today is Ash Wednesday. What? You see? His plane of thinking. I knew where he was because I was there. And immediately a verse came out of the Psalms that I quoted him. I said, this is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then I said, you rejoice in the Lord Jesus from heaven. And as I drove away, I said goodbye and I appreciated what he was doing. Standing there all day long. I looked in my rearview mirror. And he packed up and went. And I was wondering that maybe he was rushing home to amend that sign. That's what I was hoping. I hope I didn't put the fear of God in him. You know, we live in this world a very short period of time. This idea of to him includes the idea of getting it right the first time. Not to save your soul from a devil's hell or from the wrath of God. God has planted you on earth. He's inhabited this earth for his name's sake. And you got one life to get it right. The only way you're going to get it right is by following the word of God. That word which by the gospel is preached unto you. You get this thing right because your time is short. Your time is short-lived. The other aspect, and I'll close with this thought, that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by way of covenant blessings through Christ and the blessings that we have because of him and the hope of everlasting life. It really includes, this idea to him includes what we do now. That he is a mediator. He stands on our behalf right now. And I think this captures some of the thought that the Lord had when he said to his disciples, it is needful that I go away. That the Spirit would come. But what was the emphasis of that? What's the import of that? And I believe what it is, he's conveying this, that you will be blessed with my presence through the Spirit. That as long as Jesus walked this earth, he could only be in so many places at one time. But the work of the Lord includes much greater than just those 12 disciples, as he would convey to Peter on the seashore. He said, feed my lambs. It's the Lord's people in which captures the love of Christ today through the Spirit of God. And it would be far inferior to think that if Jesus comes back and sits on the throne like a dispensationalist believes, and somehow works his magic from one single solitary place in Jerusalem, that is far degrading to what the Lord conveyed to his disciples that's through the Spirit of God, I will be with you and that I will never leave you nor depart you regardless of where life may take you. And isn't that what we're concerned about? Why we're spinning our wheels every day to make sure that wherever life takes us, it's going to be a good old place. And we finally wake up in the reality that there's nothing facing us but the cemetery and six foot of ground over which we shall be under. Christ is our mediator because we, he intercedes for us right now. He hears us. He's with us. We pray to him.
And that's strength. That's strength. I don't care what you go through. It's strength. Makes you happy. Solidifies you. Gives you a reason to live in one. I don't care where you're at. I, I was reading again a story of uh, old Corey Ten Boone. You know, I've mentioned that before. I'm sorry about these old illustrations. Spurgeon never did that. He had such a mind. You can read a thousand sermons by Spurgeon. He'll never re- repeat an illustration, unlike me. Well, here's Corey Ten Boone, 1944-1945. Somewhere north of Berlin, Germany. You wouldn't want to be there at about that time. And there, Ravensbrück, which was a concentration camp for women. It was a termination plant. A plant where if you were there, you were either to work or to die. Eventually, the latter would serve. And so here they are. They're going into a barracks. Betsy and her sister, Corey, their father had long died because of the Gestapo. And they're in this prison barracks. You know, the barracks was made for 250 people. Well, there's 1,200 or more in there. And they're on top of each other, literally, in these wooden frames. And they point to her and her sister. That's yours up top. So they had to climb up there. And for the first time, they got in there. The stench was horrible. The, 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 the straw, they had no mattress, but the straw would come through the board cracks. And Corey said... It hit her like needles. The odor was beyond imaginable. And they had to live with this. And she was totally frustrated. How could a Christian, she say, put up with this? Even a Christian can. And she turns to her sister, Betsy. And Betsy's praying. And she's saying, as a matter of fact, as Corey remembers it in her book, she says, Betsy was praying, show me the way. Show me the way. And she was praying to God to show her the way. And, and all of a sudden, she says, I've got it. I've got it. Give thanks in all circumstances. And she was quoting from her Dutch version of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18, which says in our King James, In everything give thanks, which is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Where are you at today? Life is no bed of, cher- bed of roses, is it? No bowl of cherries, ultimately. There's no better place than to be in the will of God. To be thankful. And to know there's a mediator between God and man, that man Christ Jesus, who hears the prayers of his people, who strengthens them. You know, Betsy was of a weak character. She didn't make Ravensbrook. She died. But when she died, Corey looked at her face. It was like the face of an angel. And in some providential care and mistake by man, Corey was received papers on it, discharged. It was a mistake. In two weeks, most of the women that she gathered with in that barracks would end up dead. You see, God will make known his love. He's inhabited this earth for his purpose and for his glory. For all things are to him. There's a full circle of God's love that we're talking about. And you're here to redound to the praise and glory of his grace. You're here for a purpose, and she was there for a purpose. And she wrote those words, she shared those experiences so that we can give God the glory 
for what happened in her life. What is it with your life? Are you sharing that? May the Lord bless you today. We're glad you've been able to listen to this special podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you.